to the passage this morning. I wanted to briefly mention the um, outline this morning's got the financial report. We like to put that on once a month just to kind of give you an update on where we're at financially. So um, because this is January, this ends up really being a year-end report for 2023. And we'll talk about that in more detail at our annual State of the Church Sunday, which comes up in February. Um, kind of go through some of those things. But the bottom line is um, God has been so faithful to our church. We feel so blessed and grateful um, for how he's provided for us. If you look through that um, quick little uh, box on the front of your bulletin there, it just shows year-to-date income and year-to-date expense with a, um, almost $200,000 variance. And um, that's just over and above what we had planned and intended. And um, so a lot of times the question is, well, what happens with those, those dollars? Um, we have a reserve fund that's been established by our leadership, and um, which is well-funded right now. Um, and so with the reserve fund uh, reaches over a certain capacity, then um, it gets kicked back to the elders to actually make some decisions prayerfully about how to invest those funds in kingdom ventures. And so um, we've been able to partner with a couple of our missionary partners and organizational church planting partners um, to invest some of those dollars. And we're going to continue to evaluate a few other opportunities like that. So um, it's not as if we just tuck it away in a, in a savings account. Um, we do have a reserve fund, which we're grateful for, but um, we're looking for opportunities to see those dollars invested in the kingdom of God and ultimately to advance the gospel um, to the ends of the earth. That's our goal. That's what the mission of the church is. And so we're looking for ways to do that. Um, and so you can pray for the leadership as we talk through that. Um, there's also some just general um, you know, business things that are helpful. Like you might uh, walk through the family center and go, yeah, it looks like this has been untouched for a while. You know? And so some just deferred maintenance things we can do um, when we have the funds like this. We're able to tackle some things that have, uh, we've sort of put on the back burner. Um, so it's a blessing is the bottom line to be able to be in that position and start to look at the fascia on the student center and look at the carpet in the family center and go, yeah, maybe it's time to uh, you know, touch things up a little bit. And so um, we want this to be a hospitable environment. Um, We want to create a um, Sunday morning opportunity where uh, we have very little distractions and where people can continue to come find in Jesus. That's the the goal and the bottom line. So um, that's the financial report. Um, Would love to talk with you if you have any more questions about that and how the finances are managed at ABC. But the bottom line is it's a huge blessing and a gift um, where we're at right now. So thank you for those of you who've been really faithful and in giving. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 this morning, and uh, if you turn your Bibles and get that chapter open, you'll quickly recognize it. It's one of the most famous passages of Ecclesiastes um, that we're going to look at this morning, and I, I hope that there will be a clear takeaway from, uh, uh, from this passage this morning that may be just a bit more helpful than where we were last week. So uh, we're going to walk through that together. A couple of months ago, about kind of in the middle of February, um, I hit one of those points in the year where, um, where I, I felt like I needed to take a kind of solitude retreat. And the way that I know when it's time to do that is my wife tells me it's time to do that. Um, and so she said, it's time, you need to go. And so I planned this little three-day getaway, um, just a solo retreat with a journal and a Bible and a pen and, you know, some podcasts. And I get in the car and I put on the, you know, actually is audible, you know, listen to a book because that's how I roll, you know, maximize the time, got to multitask and get through the, you know, as much content as possible. And I've got three days and I'm thinking, you know, already strategically about how I'm going to, you know, make the most of three days. And I get on to 46 East And I realize this is backwards from what I'm supposed to do. I flick off the radio to pause for a minute as I'm driving and think I just need to maybe reflect for a minute. And almost instantly I began to weep as I'm driving out towards Hume. And for the next, I didn't know why. 
I, re- I didn't really feel sad. But for the next two and a half hours, I basically wept in the car while I drove all the way to Fresno. And I realized that what I had neglected in this particular season of my life was the time that it takes to feel. That sometimes you literally have to stop what you're doing in order just to feel. What am I experiencing right now? What's my body doing? What's my body telling me? To take the time to grieve things that had been lost. I was so consumed with life and schedule and family and work and all of the rhythm of that. Press in, lean in, hang in there, get through the day, get through the week, put one foot in front of the other. You know, all the things that we kind of self-speak. You just got to stick with it. Hang in. And I realized, and maybe it's not news to you, that our bodies, much less our souls, are not designed for that kind of pace. God did not design us to hang in there, to press on, to push through the week and just get to the weekend or whatever the schedule is that you're maintaining. And it was grating on my soul. What we were designed for is what I'd call a sacred pace, a pace that's outlined many places in scripture, a place that happens to be outlined here in Ecclesiastes 3, this rhythmic pace of our life that God has designed us for, for healing, for feeling, for expressing, for stopping. There is a pace and a rhythm that can produce all of those things. But the problem is your circumstances and mine, maybe your job, maybe your family, maybe a business that you own, maybe the activities that you're involved in, maybe pressure from an employer, they don't allow you or haven't allowed you to pursue this sacred pace. And so over and over again, you're hearing this message, you can't stop. Don't don't let up on the gas, wide open, full throttle, stick with it, hang in there, you're gonna get it done. You'll get through this and then you'll get through the next thing after that. So continue to maintain again and again. You can't stop the train in the words of John Mayer. You might never get off again. In Ecclesiastes chapter three this morning, there's a, there's a theme, a very clear theme. I've read this passage multiple times as I just continue to ask God, what is here for our church this morning? What's here for my heart and my soul? And the theme is permission. The writer, the preacher in Ecclesiastes is giving us this morning, all of us here that read along at ABC, permission. Permission to have fun, permission to play, permission to feel, Permission to grieve, permission to build, to grow, permission to stop. Whatever the season you're in, permission's granted. Be in that season. Feel it. Live it. Embrace it. Grab onto it. Seize the season. I was listening to an interview this week with David Kinneman, who's the president of the Barna Group. Fantastic, just brilliant mind. Um, And he was talking about something entirely unrelated, but he just kind of interjected. He said, you know what Ecclesiastes is for the ambitious soul? He said, it's ointment for those of us who are ambitious. He said, God designed us to be ambitious and is happy with our ambition for us to pursue the things that are put in front of us, to continue to do the things that we are hungry to do and feel maybe even called to do. But it's a clear and stark reminder when we read Ecclesiastes that God does not need you to do the ambitious things. Doesn't change who God is. And in so many ways, it doesn't change who you are. You don't always have to do the next thing. 
So permission to stop. Let's read this morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I want to just read the first eight verses. This is that famous poem, and then we'll get to the second half of the passage in a minute. But follow along as I read. It's on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. This is a poem of seasons. We've titled this series through Ecclesiastes, Seasons. Things change, ebb and flow. We go through these ups and downs of life. Nighttime, daytime, darkness, light, winter, summer, heat, cold. Whatever season you might find yourself in today as you walk into the room, what I I believe that the preacher in Ecclesiastes wants to say to you is you have permission to experience and embrace that season. Permission has been granted. The world is not going anywhere. It'll be right there waiting for you. A different season is coming. This one will pass and a new one is on the horizon. So let's look together at the seasons and find ourselves. My hope for you is to find yourself the permission to walk through the season that you're facing right now. First one is permission to stop. And that's in verse two. He says, there's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted Verse 5 is there's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Verse 5, I'm sorry, verse 4, there's a time to mourn and a time to dance. There's a time to pause, a time in between, to stop, to pull up what's been planted. That's really interesting imagery because everywhere else in Scripture, when you go through kind of these agricultural analogies, There's a lot of sowing and a lot of planting, right? So you see, you know, sowing seeds, cultivating the ground, watering the seeds. Um, You have images of the harvest of pruning and then maybe even collecting what's grown or producing more fruit because of the way that the cultivation is taking place. So there's all these agricultural references in scripture. And this one, to my knowledge, is the only one that says, pull up the thing that you planted. He didn't say harvest the thing that was planted or pick the fruit off the thing that was planted. No, no, pull it up from the ground, like rip the roots out, which is so backwards to the productivity mindset of our world, right? We think progress, build, grow, cultivate. Yeah, if you have to trim a little, that's fine. Pruning's okay, but don't pull it up. That's killing the thing. There's permission to stop. We're not prone to stop. Because it's the opposite in our mind of progress. 
And we think our life is on this trajectory of constantly moving forward one foot in front of the other. And if you pull something up, it's like taking a big step backwards and that feels counterproductive. And we would actually even say, maybe you wouldn't admit it, but you might even believe inherently, at least culturally speaking, that that's unbiblical. It's unbiblical to go backwards, right? What do we call it in old Christianese terms? Backsliding. Don't go backwards. Go only forwards. Not biblical. Ecclesiastes, there's a time to pull things up. You've maybe heard of fallow ground. It's not something that we talk about much anymore in agriculture. I'm not an agricultural expert, by the way. There are those of you in the room that will probably correct me later. Um, But I've heard it said that uh, in kind of older agricultural techniques, they used to let a field go fallow. Nowadays, there's a lot of modern techniques where you can like alternate crops to maximize the nutrient usage of the soil. And there's a lot of supplements and other things you can do in irrigation where you don't need to do that so much anymore. But years ago, you would let the ground go fallow. You would pull up what has been planted and let the land sit. Let the land be restored By letting a a field go fallow, it restores the nutrient components that are in the soil. It restores the moisture content in the dirt. And it allows for that field to be far more fruitful in the future. And so you let it sit. Again, counterproductive. Let the land sit or rest. Pull up what's been planted. Stop doing something. You don't always have to start. Sometimes it's okay to stop. I appreciate uh, Henry Cloud. Some of you guys have read Henry Cloud's work. He has a really famous book called Boundaries. But he has another less famous book called Necessary Endings. And it's really good. There's some amazing content there. But he says in Necessary Endings, in the language of Ecclesiastes, he's referencing there are situations in business or in life when you're trying to birth things that should be dying, trying to heal something that should be killed off, laughing at something that you should be weeping about, embracing something or someone who you should shun, searching for an answer for something when it's time to give up, continuing to try to love something or someone when it is time to talk about what you hate. It's kind of a harsh sentiment, but it sounds so in line with what the writer in Ecclesiastes is saying. Sometimes there's time to kill something. Let something die. You don't always have to start and cultivate and try to mend and heal and and carry the thing that maybe just needs to die. There's a time, he says, to stop. It feels wrong, but it's true. Some things, sometimes the things, the necessary things that need to die are in order to make room for more fruitful things to grow. And so we all feel... The permission when we think about growth to start, to grow, to plant. But please, according to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, feel the permission to stop. And then look at verse 5. There's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. I love that he used the word refrain. It's this pause. Just stop. Don't do something for a minute. Maybe don't make the decision yet. Maybe step, lean back instead of lean forward. Refrain. And oftentimes, 
It's been so true in my life and maybe in yours that in those seasons of refrain, in the seasons of stop, maybe the only time and space that you find permission to feel. That's the second point there, permission to feel. Verse 4. He spends an entire stanza in this poem on feelings, on emotions. Verse 4 says, There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. I think it's really helpful that it's ordered this way because it's backwards to the way I would have ordered it. I'd say there's a time to laugh with exclamation and underline bold and a time to lowercase weep. Time to dance with all the gusto and energy and a time to mourn in parentheses. Right? Like that's kind of how our lives are lived. We put those things in brackets. After the positive, we can sort of sneak the negative in. Well, it's okay, but make sure you're laughing to balance out your mourning. Make sure you're dancing to balance out your grieving, right? Like there's these sort of conditional permission we give ourselves as it relates to feelings, particularly negative feelings. But he starts, no, these phrases with the weeping and with the mourning. There is a time to weep and there is a time to mourn. And he answers those with laughter and dancing. Far more appropriate, at least according to Scripture. There was a Harvard study done just a couple years ago, 2020, where they analyzed the physiological impact of crying. They wanted to see what happens to the body when somebody cries. Emotional tears, not like just from eating a cayenne pepper, like emotional tears. And so they did this study and they tried to analyze sort of the chemical makeup of your brain and what happens in, you know, just the, um, you know, your kind of immunoresponse system as a result of that. And they found um, over a long, as a three-year study, they found that there is a literal flush of toxins from the body when you cry. It literally pours out the bad stuff. Crazy. And no news to you, also a balancing of hormones through the release of oxytocin and endorphins to your brain, creating this balance of chemical makeup when you cry tears that are emotional. Now, that may not be a surprise to you, but what might be a surprise to you is that the average male adult cries one time per month. It's like 1.4 times. You're thinking, yeah, well, that's a lot more than I cry. Jeez, baby. <laughs> the, the average female adult cries three and a half times per month. So a little over three times as much as the men. Also, you know, you'd, you'd maybe assume that. But the average adult laughs four times a day. So if you do the math on that, it's a 99 to one ratio, laughter to crying. And yet he starts and says, there is a time to weep and a time to laugh. Yes, there's a time to laugh, but there's a time to weep. There is a time to mourn and a time to dance, but we've got this 99 to 1 ratio. Maybe that's how God designed it. I don't know. But what I know is it's imbalanced, not as the scripture entails. So as we walk through the moments of grief, of pain, of mourning, of sadness, even just seeing a sad scene, take the time to feel I'm not suggesting you walk out of the room just weeping all the time. I'm going to get my 99 to 1 back and just trying to figure out my ratios. Right? Like, that's not, that's not what I'm suggesting. But here, the, the Kohelet, the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, argues there is a time for both. Permission is the word. In John chapter 11, Jesus encounters Mary, whose brother had just died. You remember this scene her brother's name was Lazarus. And I'm just so thankful for John's 
clear language and descriptions of Jesus. He's just so in tune with what's happening in these scenes. And so as Jesus encounters Mary, John says in chapter 11, he was, this was Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Which is so bizarre because you know the scene and you know what happens. He ends up healing and raising Lazarus from the dead. But for some reason, unbeknownst to us, Jesus feels greatly and deeply troubled. He takes the time in the moment to feel. And he goes on, chapter 11, verse 34. You remember this famous, famous verse or 35. Two words only. Easiest verse in the Bible to memorize. Jesus wept. He wept. He paused for long enough to feel, experienced the rush of emotions, and gave himself over to it to the point of crying. Because Jesus knew there was a time for weeping, but a time for laughter. But sometimes laughter requires that you don't ignore the weeping. And he didn't neglect the pain of the moment. He didn't fight back the tears. He didn't push through the grief. He just stopped for long enough to feel. And he was criticized for it. I mean, keep reading down in the next verse. It says, they, they asked, why couldn't Jesus, who opened the eyes of the blind, also have kept this man from dying? And yet he's crying about it. But he could have healed him. He could have prevented this. And he's crying about it. Why is he crying? Because he, he knew that in that moment, he couldn't neglect the tears. And inversely, when you're in a season of weeping or mourning... And the rush of joy comes over from a funny memory or a unique circumstance. Don't neglect the laughter. That's why these lines in this poem are so balanced back and forth all the time. Yeah, it's okay to embrace the season of of mourning, of grief, of weeping, but don't neglect the time. Don't keep yourself from laughter when the time comes. There's a... um, a uh, kind of a description or if you want to call it commentary on this passage uh, by the the Reverend Joseph Parker. And um, it's interesting. Um, I've got a whole bunch of uh, kind of resources as it relates to commentaries, as you'd imagine, you know, probably five or six sets. And um, of of those sets, there's a, I've got a list of um, 3,000 sermons that are categorized from the 19th century and of all the 3,000 sermons and all the five or six commentaries, there's only one guy that chose to address Ecclesiastes. <laughs> Everybody else stayed away from it. Sorry, a little side note. Um, and you're thinking, then why are we going to Ecclesiastes? But, uh, but, but Parker says um, in his description of this passage, he, he poses the question, and this is in 18th century um, in England, you know, in a very proper culture. He asks, is it right, though, to dance? He says, you may as well ask if it's right to breathe. It's not a question of right or wrong. It is a question of necessity. Whether you will turn dancing into an art or not, please yourself. But you must dance. When joy blows her trumpet and sunshine warms the blood, there's a time to cast away stones, a time to uproot, to abolish, to tear down, and to destroy. And there is a time to construct and to build and to make strong. The great thing is to know the time. And to say the right word at the right moment, there is a time to dance, but he who would dance in the house of mourning is a foolish man. 
and one not to be endured. There is a time to mourn, but he who would mourn at a wedding would be as one who shut the sun and shortened the road to the grave. There is a time, both for mourning and for dancing. Know the season. And if you're unclear on the season, the Kohelet gives us clear permission to reflect. Sometimes we need the moments of reflection in order to identify the season. So verse 7, he says, There is a time to keep silence and a time to speak. Is it obvious for me to remind you that we often learn more in our seasons of listening than we do speaking? You're going, like, speak for yourself. (laughs) I know. I'm looking in the mirror. I'm not short on words. But in those seasons, in those moments of listening, is sometimes when we find the clarity to be able to identify not only the season, but also the steps forward and through the season, that we stop and withdraw and pull back and allow for others to speak, to allow God to speak, Scripture, the Holy Spirit to speak and to lead us through these moments. I'm so thankful for Proverbs chapter 17. It's one of my favorite chapters in all the Proverbs. It says, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Even a fool. Just keep quiet. You'll appear a lot smarter than you maybe are. Just shut your mouth for a minute. Solomon goes on right in the next chapter, right after 17, the first couple of verses of 18. He kind of continues the same thought. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. Isn't that true? How often do we take pleasure in expressing our own opinion rather than just listening? I I don't make very many uh, social media posts. I'm not in in the habit of doing that. Um, But apparently I I used to be (laughs) like years ago. Do you guys get those little things that pop up and they're like, 10 years ago today, you said this dumb thing, you know, like puts a little thing on your screen. And so I like, I I see a few of those. The last one that popped up a couple weeks ago, it was a picture of a chalupa at Taco Bell, like stuffed with hot Cheetos. And I was, I think I was like so overwhelmed with the stupidity of that, that I just like had to say something that I was like, wow, the culinary experts are at it again. Look at, they've come up with a new design for the chalupa at Taco Bell, stuffing it with hot Cheetos. Nobody cares what I think about Taco Bell. This is not news to you, right? And yet I, you know, sit there, ah, this is a good one, Send, right? Like, picture send. Man, this is a good one. Ah, got him. Nobody cares. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. Marnie uh, in our office was reading through my notes this week. And she goes, this hasn't changed. And I said, what do you mean? I haven't posted on social media like in 10 years. And she goes, no, you just rant about it in the office when you walk in. It's just a different (laughs) format, same problem. Oh, man. Permission is what we need. Permission. And I, I wonder if, if we were able to be more disciplined in these ebb and flow seasons. Permission to stay silent. Permission to listen. If it might produce more seasons of healing. It's the, the next point there that in these seasons we need healing. Regardless of the circumstance. Verse 3 He says, there's a time to kill and a time to heal. Verse 7, a time to break down and a time to build up. There's a time to tear and a time to sow. When we've been faithful, and I think this is true, when we've been faithful and obedient with pause, with reflect, feel, listen, 
withdraw. I believe that it allows for the time for us to grieve the things that have been lost and begin to heal in season. We need time to heal, which means it's okay when you're in a season of pain to say, I'm not ready yet. That is an okay statement to come out of your mouth. I'm not ready yet to jump into this new opportunity. I'm not ready yet to try to get pregnant again. I'm not ready yet to try out a new friendship. I'm not ready yet to clean out their closet or to sell this house. I'm not ready. I need to heal. That's okay. It's true that time alone does not heal. But in time, in seasons, we regain the ability to love and to seek we regain the ability to fight. Read these final verses. I want to just read a handpick a few lines from verse 6, 7, and 8 as he wraps up this poem. He says, there's a time to seek, that's verse 6. There's a time to speak, that's verse 7. And there's a time to love, that's verse 8. And there's a time to fight. That in these seasons, in these moments where you've taken the time to heal, you find the permission then to lean back in and to fight. To take action. I've spent so much of this um, time in reflecting on this poem on the passive. There's so much passive. And that's intentional because I think we're wired for active. That I think it was important for us to actually see these words as passive active or passive action in our lives. To stop. To feel. To heal. To be quiet. To listen. To pause for long enough to see what season you're in. But there is permission. In the very poem, in the very passage, permission to fight. It's important in these moments, equally as important as pausing to re-engage in the fight. To look for opportunities, there's a time for speaking. There is a time to say the thing that's true. Yes, maybe beneficial to stop and listen first, but there is a time for speaking. Look for relationships. There is a time, he says, for love. Lean in. Look for projects. There are things to be built. There is work to be done. It's not as if we could step back and retreat for the rest of our life without ever re-engaging. There are friendships to be rekindled, relationships to be restored, things to take on, to lean towards. Look around. Seek those who are standing with you. And the chances are, even in the season of utmost grief or pain, or hurt, or whatever you're going through, or have gone through, you can look around and find someone standing with you. They may, maybe at a distance even. Look around for those who are standing with you and fight for them. Love them. Lean in. Permission to fight. I want to finish the passage and just read the, the remaining verses here up to verse 15. But let me just give you a little lens to see this through. What, here's what I see uh, him doing is he rattles off this very poetic, really beautiful sequence. And then there's a reflection on the truth that exists in there because he builds a little bit of tension, right? Like you read this thing and you're like, oh, season to die, season to be born, season to kill, season to heal. Like, oh, what season am I in? What am I supposed to kill, right? He's just kind of looking through this. This whole scene of life. And then he gives a little commentary on the poem. So just listen to his commentary. He says in verse 9. 
What gain is the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Only God knows the beginning to the end. Verse 12, I perceive that there is nothing better for them, that's you and me, than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor nothing taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. So he gets through this whole thing and says, permission, permission, permission. You can feel this season. You can experience the loss. You can lean towards others. You have permission to love, but you also have permission to stop something, to kill something, to reflect, to listen, to feel, mourn, cry, laugh, dance, all the permissions there. And he says, and by the way, God's in control of all of it and he desires for you to find pleasure in it. So permission to enjoy the season. And you might think, well, I, can't, I can't enjoy this. I can't find pleasure in this. He says, well, God's put eternity in your heart and he finds all of this beautiful in his time. And he's charted out the time, the seasons, the ebbs and the flows, designed in such a way to produce a longing for you for eternity that will never allow you to be fully satisfied, but it doesn't mean you can't enjoy. Arthur Schopenhauer is a really sad philosopher from like 200 years ago. If you read his stuff, it's really depressing. I'm not not recommending it. He was an asceticist and, you know, thought you should just retreat from the world and experience no pleasure. But what he says is that when you find a pleasurable, let me see if I can read the, find the quote here. If cheerfulness knocks at the door, he says, we should throw it wide open for it never comes inopportunely. When the, when the joy comes, when the, the moment comes, the laughter, the joke, the nod, the sunshine comes, embrace it. Because God has ordained all of these seasons. Sometimes we need the reminder to walk through the season with grace and with faith that our God has designed it uniquely for us to curate a soul that's going to be fitted and perfected for him to enjoy one day in all of eternity. I want to close with um, just a a vision that this guy had. This is uh, Jerry Sitzer. And uh, Jerry, if, you, if you've heard of this book, it's called A Grace Disguised. He's a theology professor at Whitworth. So just a brilliant mind. Um, really understands, you know, just a, kind of a holistic theology and philosophy of life. And so in 1991, though, um, Jerry lost his wife and his mother and his daughter all in the same car accident. Um, he and his other two children were there present on the scene and he experienced a, a grief that nobody I, I know in my lifetime has experienced the way he describes. It's the darkest night of 
human soul in my mind, what he walked through in, in those years following that accident. And about 10 years um, later, he was really encouraged by some family and friends to record some of his thoughts in a memoir. And so he wrote this, is really a memoir, it's called A Grace Disguised. And he's, he opens this, it's a great resource, by the way, if you're walking through any season of grief, um, I highly recommend this, unlike the you know, Schopenhauer quote. Um, he opens with this premise where he, he's falling, feels kind of like he's falling into this abyss of darkness and doesn't know how to feel, doesn't know what to think or where to go from there. And so he has a, in that moment uh, what he calls a waking dream, a vision. And I just want to read it for you as we, we close this morning. He says, I had a waking dream shortly after that caused, I am sure, by that initial experience of darkness. I dreamed of a setting sun, and I was frantically running west, trying to desperately catch it and remain in its fiery warmth and light. But I was losing the race. The sun was beating me to the horizon and was soon gone. I suddenly found myself in the twilight, exhausted. I stopped running and glanced with foreboding over my shoulder to the east, and I saw a vast darkness closing in on me and was terrified by the darkness. I wanted to keep running after the sun, but I knew it was futile, for it had already proven itself faster than I was. So I lost all hope. I collapsed to the ground and fell into despair. I thought at that moment that I would live in darkness forever. I felt absolute terror in my soul. Later, he said, my sister told me that the quickest way for anyone to reach the sun in the light of the day is not to run west, chasing after the setting sun, but to head east, plunging into the darkness until one comes to the sunrise. And I discovered in that moment that I had the power to choose the direction my life would head, even if the only choice open to me, at least initially, was either to run from the loss or to face it as best as I could. Since I knew that the darkness was inevitable and unavoidable, I decided from that that point on to walk into the darkness rather than try to outrun it, to let my experience of loss take me on a journey wherever it would lead and to allow myself to be transformed by my suffering rather than to think that I could somehow avoid it. And he goes on to talk about the moments of utter grief and darkness as he decided to walk east face the season, embrace it, the permission to feel this is as hard as it gets, to walk towards the sunrise through the darkness and realize that we have a different premise, we have a different starting point than anyone else in the world who's walked through this because Jerry, like us, has a companion, a traveling partner through the darkness and his name is Jesus. And Jesus will take you by the hand in those moments when you choose to embrace him and say, I'm gonna walk with you through that darkness and you're gonna experience pain like you've never experienced before, but I will be with you walking through the pain, carrying you one day after another until we get to the sunrise and the light crests the hill and you realize that this season two is over. And there's another season coming. And the season is on eternity's shore. That there will be a moment that you're being anchored by. That heaven has sunk its fish hook deep into your heart. And it is ripping you towards eternity. Because we are not longed for this world. And Jesus will carry you there. Jesus will meet you there. 
Jesus will walk you through the darkness. So wherever you find yourself heading into 2024, maybe it's not a season of darkness. Maybe it's a lighthearted, optimistic approach toward the year. And I hope that's true. The clear message of the Kohelet this morning. Do you find yourself laughing? Permission to laugh. Do you find yourself dancing? Go ahead and dance. Enjoy it. Embrace it. It's from God. Take pleasure in it. Do you find yourself planting something? Yeah, do that. Plant something. That's from God too. Do you find yourself needing to uproot something? Okay, go ahead. That's painful, but I'm going to help you through the pain. Do you find yourself weeping in maybe the darkest night you've ever experienced like Jerry Sitzer? Walk through it head on. Don't run from it. Embrace the season. Permission to embrace the season you're in and allow Jesus to carry you through it. Let me pray for you. Father, I admit that in our finite minds, we are incapable of seeing context and perspective, which means that we have a really hard time with changing seasons. Lord, we don't see what you're doing on a, on a grander scale. We don't see how the changing of these seasons refines our, our souls. We don't always see the, the next season coming, which makes the one we're in sometimes very, very hard. So I admit this morning, Lord, that my perspective is limited and that I put too much stock and inventory into the things that are happening right now in front of me. Would you help extract our vision and our minds to see that there is a long game that you're playing with us and that is to lead us to eternity. And ultimately what you desire for us is to embrace the traveling companion, embrace the savior, the one who sacrificed, who experienced the darkest night that any human being has ever experienced when he took on the sin, the weight of the sin of the world. In order that we could be carried through our own seasons 